out of your mercy and your goodness and your kindness. But Father, we pray for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your fame and honor, that you would raise up pastors, especially rural pastors in Taiwan, that the gospel might flourish and that the people of that island might hear your word and be saved. We pray for a gospel movement to take root, a revival to break out among those people there who speak Hokkien and number so few among your saints. And yet we pray, we pray for those beautiful feet bearing good news that people might hear and believe and by believing be saved. Father, we pray here locally for our, for our school district. We pray for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District as they um, look to bring a new CEO on board and we pray for wisdom from the school board and wisdom from the mayor and his office and uh, that all of the, the parties that are involved and, and responsible for making this final decision would have the insight uh, to know who the best candidate would be and that they would have the, the boldness to move forward on that. Father, we pray this because we want our schools to flourish and we want our children to flourish and we want our families to flourish. Yes, Father, because we have compassion, but, but also, Father, because we know that where peaceful and, and quiet lives are allowed to exist, your gospel has an open door and a megaphone. And so we pray this, Father, that the obstacles of this world and the burdens of this world and the, the weights of this world uh, that rest on so many families here in Cleveland uh, would be alleviated enough that their ears might be open to hear eternal things. Father, we pray for those who are going on our trip this summer to Panama, and we pray for those who are considering going on that trip, that you would uh, move in their hearts uh, to, to know what it is you are calling them to do and prepare each and every one of them uh, to minister boldly and faithfully and to learn and to grow in the knowledge of your mission as well as the knowledge of Christ. We pray, Father, that those of us who stay would be faithful partners in prayer that that trip might be successful. And Father, we pray. We pray for our co-workers and all of the, the, the companies and businesses that we work in uh, as a church. We pray that we would have the boldness, the courage, to bring the light of Christ to these people that we 
work alongside hour upon hour upon hour each week, whether we do it virtually or whether we do it in person. And we pray, Father, for a, a spirit-encouraged openness to the gospel in our co-workers. So even in our weakness and even in our fear and trembling, that, that maybe some of our co-workers would even simply bring the subject up to us, to ask us, and put us on the spot. That you would open those doors for us, that we might be encouraged and we might have confidence to speak your name. Make us a people who make much of you wherever you send us, including the places where we work. Father, now we pray that you would help us to understand you better in your word. And may I preach it faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, flip over to 1 Samuel 28. Or swipe, or tap, or... Well, don't tell your voice assistant to do it, because that'll get annoying if everyone's doing that at the same time. But you get there anyways, other... Possible, any other possible way you need to get to 1 Samuel 28. If you need a Bible, there should be one in a seat uh, in front of you or right under you if you're in the front row. Um, you should be able to find one. And we are, we are making our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and we are rapidly coming to an end. We have sermon cards in the back telling you what uh, passages we're going to be looking at which weeks, which are a week off because I was sick one week. Uh, but the 14th we will be, uh, or the 20, 21st, 21st we will, be, we will be done. We're going to be starting in verse 3 and then going down to the rest of the chapter. Let me read this and then, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whoever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, 
why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not, avoid, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength for him. For he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away by night. I was, uh, I, I mentioned in the past, I've mentioned recently that I've, I've gotten into a bit of uh, the habit of researching my uh, genealogy, uh, researching the family tree, uh, as it were. And it started in earnest during the pandemic. And one of the early discoveries I made, I, I kind of want to do this for my boys, you know, so that they have their family history. And one of the discoveries I made uh, early on uh, was about my boy's great, great, great grandmother. And I found a, a newspaper clipping. This was published in the paper. And it, and it begins quite shockingly this way. The spirit of Mrs. Betsy Starr's first husband talked yesterday in the circuit court during the trial of her separate maintenance suit against Edgar L. Starr. The spirit made its appearance through a deposition by Frank Frost, spiritualist, who died a year ago. That was in the, the local paper. I'm no lawyer. My, my understanding is that a, a maintenance suit, though, is, is an action for spousal support in legal separation as opposed to a divorce. So they apparently had some belief, this is from 1911, that Betsy's first dead husband might be an important 
witness in this case. And, and he could share some of that important information through a seance. And uh, th this woman had apparently had many seances with Frank, but Frank was in bad health, and he agreed to be deposed about those conversations that he had had with her dead husband through his work, knowing that he would not be alive by the time things got to trial. Otherwise, I suppose they would have called the spirit to the stand in the middle of court. It's a strange tale, but it's not nearly as strange as this one we have in our passage. And this idea that for thousands of years people have been trying to speak to the dead, or with desperate souls on daytime television to First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln, or Saul, the son of Kish, king of Israel. This book has been uh, full of surprises. It's rich in theology. It's challenging in its nuance. And this passage is no different. But, it, but it's here. It's written down for us. And, and, and the Apostle Paul would teach the Christians in Rome a thousand years later, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and strength, uh, through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So even this strange story is for our instruction and our hope. So let's dig in and see what God has for us. But before we can kind of pull these threads together and understand what God is, is teaching us in this passage, we kind of need to untangle this and figure out where these threads are going, how they're all knotted up here. In other words, what is going on in this passage? Because it is, it is weird, right? So let, let's take a look at what it has to say. And the first verse that we're looking at here, verse 3, it sets the stage of our passage. It gives us sort of the backstory. And if you haven't been with us, that's a little bit more important. It says, now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him at Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So Samuel was the prophet. He was the judge of Israel that this book is named after. He was almost like the moral compass for the nation at a time when it was in desperate need of a moral compass. Unfaithfulness had become the defining characteristic of the Israelites who were supposed to be God's people. And with it came the corruption and the oppression and the enmity that inevitably follows from rejecting God as our true king. Samuel's death had already been recorded in chapter 25. So this isn't new information. This is just reminding us of the current state of affairs at the time chapter 28 rolls around. And it's important to remember that Samuel was very, very dead. Or else what happens in this chapter would be very confusing. Samuel is dead. There's something else we need to know about the state of affairs, and that's namely that Samuel had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. If, if there was a difference between uh, mediums and necromancers to the biblical authors, that distinction is probably lost on us. Both were groups of individuals who communicated with the dead, or the spirit world in order to provide secret information. God's law that he had given to Israel as part of the covenant that he had made with them expressly forbid that kind of practice. So, stated pretty plainly in Deuteronomy 18, but also a couple other places, 
there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. See, as far as God's people were concerned, there was only one spirit that they were to have anything to do with. Only one God, Yahweh, the Lord. They were to worship Him alone, to seek Him alone, to trust Him alone. And if they were faithful, He promised to care for them and to protect them. They, they wouldn't have any need to gain any secret knowledge about the present or the future from any other spiritual source because he would reveal to them everything they needed to live holy and upright lives. So turning to sorcerers or fortune tellers was, is really no different than turning to worship and trust in other gods. It's a violation of the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now apparently, and, and this was not recorded earlier, apparently at some point in time, Saul had gotten rid of these practices in the land that the Israelites controlled. And that's a really good thing. It's a reminder of how much promise King Saul had at the very beginning of his reign. He wasn't perfect, but there was promise. He did many good things for the Israelites. He wasn't always so driven by ego and jealousy as he has become by this point in the book, if you've been reading along or, or following along with us. But we'll come back to that point in a minute. That sets the stage. That's the backstory for a passage. Maybe there's something else we need to say, though, by way of backstory. It's how this passage we looked, or the passage we looked at last week, ended. And, and we ended it in verse 2 of this chapter. Because I really think those go a little bit better with 27 than they go with 28. But uh, they say something about the current state of affairs. The Philistines, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. The Philistines are encamped, they are ready to attack, and that sets up the crisis in this passage. And what, so we have the backstory, and then we have this sort of crisis that puts everything into motion. And our text this morning says they were encamped at Shunem, which is significant. Because the, the Philistines' power was, was centered along the Mediterranean coast, especially the southern coast. And, and while we can't be exactly sure, GPS-wise, where Shunem was, we have a pretty good idea. We have some general ideas. And it was fairly far north and fairly far inland. And that means that the Philistines have made some pretty significant incursions into Israelite territory. And so it's no wonder that Saul is terrified of this army's presence. 
Now Saul was still Israel's king, and he's their chief military strategist. So he amasses the troops at Gilboa, which is actually a small mountain range. And it would give them an elevation advantage compared to Shunem, about 20 miles away. But that doesn't seem like it was much consolation for Saul. Saul knew he was facing a crisis unlike anything he had dealt with at this point, and he inquired of the Lord. Which means he tried to find out what God's will was for how he should lead God's people. And he wasn't successful. God doesn't answer him. God doesn't answer him in dreams. God doesn't answer him by the Urim, and God does not answer him by the prophets. Yeah, sometimes God spoke to his people in dreams. It wasn't the most common way, but but he had spoken to Abraham, and he had spoken to Jacob, and he had spoken to Joseph in dreams. But nothing came to Saul at night. The Israelites could also seek God through the uh, Urim and Thummim, and, and we don't know exactly how they used these stones, but they were kept in the possession of the high priest who was an intermediary between God and his people and was authorized to discern God's will by using them. We may not know exactly how the Israelites used those instruments, but we have no idea what it meant that Saul tried to use that because there was no priest to use the Urim and the Thummim because in a fit of jealousy, you might remember, Saul had killed all of Israel's priests in a massacre in chapter 22. And the only priest who survived that holocaust had fled to David for protection. And so it's no wonder God doesn't answer Saul that way. Whatever he was trying to do, it was bound to fail. And the prophets will say, you know, Samuel has already demonstrated, excuse me, Saul has already demonstrated an unwillingness to obey God through the voice of the prophet Samuel. So it would be a wonder if any of the other prophets would have been willing to help him out But if they had been willing, God obviously did not give them any messages for Saul. And so Saul was facing this monstrous crisis against the backdrop of God's silence. And the irony of that is potent because this saga began in chapter 8 when the Israelites demanded that the prophet Samuel give them a king like all the other nations had, a king that would lead the people and fight their battles. And God gave them just what they wanted. Just like all the other kings of earth, Saul was leading his people into battle completely ignorant of God. So that's the crisis that they face. That's the backstory of the crisis. So what then happens? What's going on here? In front of this backdrop, in this time of desperation and fear, Saul seeks out a medium. His servants either know where one is or they're able to successfully spy one out, and she was at Endor, which is just behind enemy lines. And so fearful and cowardly, Saul goes under the cover of darkness in disguise to Endor. He's probably afraid of the enemy. He's probably afraid of being seen by his own people. He's a creature of night. The book of Proverbs says, 
The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And years later, Jesus would offer a promise of hope to us who are creatures of the night. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But there wasn't light in Saul. Saul knows he needs God, but he no longer knows how to find him. And when Saul meets this medium, this necromancer, she's reluctant. She doesn't recognize him, but she's apparently not in the habit of practicing her dark arts very openly anymore, and so she's cautious. She knows what Saul had previously ordered. But Saul insists he'll ensure her safety. In fact, listen to Saul's words again in verse 10. He said, But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Saul swore an oath to give this necromancer, this medium, the confidence that he would not betray her. He swore an oath by the Lord. The very Lord he was rejecting by going to the medium. The very Lord who had commanded his people stay away from this sort of occult practice. This is the most basic and the most literal and the most straightforward definition of violating the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Saul was using God's name to help him dishonor God's name. But it worked. And this medium went to work. She asks him who he wants to see, and, and Saul names Samuel, which is a bold choice. Samuel had not seen Saul since the day he prophesied that God had rejected him as king. The day when Saul had acted on his own wisdom and insight instead of following God's word. And as Samuel left Saul that day, it was a terrible sight. It, it was as if God's word itself, as communicated through his prophet, was, was leaving Saul's life and, and walking over the hill and into the distance. And so it's another irony that, that God went silent in Saul's life when Samuel left, and now it is God's silence that leads Saul to desperately seek Samuel. Well, the woman complies with, with, with Saul's request, and out of what was probably a pit in the ground used for conjuring up spirits, something arises, and she shrieks in horror when she sees Samuel, and somehow she knows she's dealing with Saul. It's not clear if she was terrified that this actually worked or that someone as important as Samuel was there. It's not clear how she realized it was King Saul 
that was in front of her, but, but something in the dark arts gave her insight and fear. And, and here, maybe we should pause and, and deal with questions I know that are going through your, pra- your brain, like, what is going on? Did this really happen? Did she really have this ability? Can you conjure spirits out of a pit? Where did Samuel come from? Was she a fake? And I'll say this, it's not the point of the story to answer all of those those questions. It's not the the main point here. But I know sometimes it's hard to move on when some of those things are in our head. So so let me at least try to address some of those things briefly. And then if you want to talk about it more, I'd love to get together with you uh, after service or grab a cup of coffee or or, or whatever. But Jews and Christians have debated some of these things over the years. Um, Whether this, you know, she was a phony or whether this was real. I think this woman really did conjure up the spirit of Samuel. I don't know whether she could usually do something like that or God just allowed it to work in this particular moment, but the text says it was Samuel. The person speaks like Samuel, and he gives a prophecy in the name of the Lord that comes true. I think we're supposed to believe and accept that it is Samuel. Samuel would have been uh, in in what the Jews called Sheol, the realm of the dead. In the Greek, they called it Hades. Hades was not hell. It's just the place where the dead go. And and the Bible does not say much about the existence of the dead or what it is like, because it's not our concern. But there are places that suggest that for the righteous, it is a place of peace and rest. And that would probably explain why Samuel is a bit annoyed that he's being disturbed. And when Saul asks the medium what she sees, she says she sees a God coming up out of the earth. And and that might be, that translation might be taking things a little too far. The word here can refer to a God, but it can also refer to just any spiritual being, any being that does not have a physical body. Angels, demons, gods, or in this case, the spirit of the dead Samuel himself. Now, I I am a skeptic by nature. I think there are far more fraudsters out there than practitioners of the dark arts, but the existence of those frauds doesn't mean that the whole of them are frauds. And Christians should stay away from this, frauds or not, because we are called to place our trust in Christ who holds our destinies. But this passage is a reminder that there are real dangers behind some of these ideas also. So again, if you want to talk more about this, uh, you have other questions, we can, we can chat after service. So you've got the medium, you've got Saul, And now you've got Samuel. And Samuel wants to know why he's out of bed so early in the morning. And Saul explains the crisis he's in. God has turned away from me. He answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Listen to that carefully. Saul doesn't go to Samuel to hear one final word from the Lord. Heck, he can't even bring himself to use God's name, Yahweh. He's already accepted that God has rejected him. 
So he wants to know what Samuel will tell him. I would not for a moment consider myself to be the equal of Samuel, but over the years I've had more than one encounter with someone who refuses to acknowledge God, who will not or cannot put their trust in Christ, but for some reason or another still thinks I'm a good source of information or wisdom. Maybe you've encountered this as well. Maybe I get it a little bit more because of that title, pastor. But I think there's a sense in which maybe people want the wisdom of God without the worship of God. They want the favor of Christ without the following of Christ. And they sense that something's going on in your life that seems to work. I don't want to go to all the work of that work, but I want what you got. What Saul needed more than anything was to repent, to turn, to change from running away from God to running toward God. Not just to seek the gifts of God, but to seek God himself. But all he wanted was information, how to win the battle, how to live another day, how to be a great and victorious king. Is that what you want from God? Be, be honest with yourself. You might not want to say it, but do you want what God can provide you, or do you want God himself? Do you want his gifts, his power, his wisdom, his riches, so that you can be great in your short time on earth? Or do you want God himself, even if it means carrying the cross of Christ? Do you want to escape hell? Or does your heart truly cry, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Do you want the provisions or do you want the provider? Well, Samuel's words to Saul are haunting, and I, I truly mean that, no pun intended. Um, he says the Lord has become Saul's enemy. And he has done exactly what Samuel told him those many years ago. He has taken the kingdom from him and given it to a better man. Only now, Samuel knows the name of that man, and so does Saul. It's David, the son of Jesse. But Samuel does have a word from the Lord for Saul. Not a word of what he should do, but a word about what will happen. Tomorrow, Saul and all of his sons will join Samuel in the realm of the dead after they are slaughtered by the Philistine army. Saul falls over. There's no mention of Samuel leaving, but he's apparently gone because we, have not, we don't hear from him again. Saul is weak, not only at the news, but he's weak because he's apparently been fasting for a long time, and so he's encouraged to eat. And the medium kills a fattened calf for her king. It is an expensive and luxurious meal 
a last meal for a king. And then Saul leaves to return to Gilboa, a long, slow march to his own death. So where does this passage take us then? Like this, what are we supposed to take away from it? And I want to suggest two principles, which are like the two sides of the same coin, and then a comfort that flows from those. When we're coming to the Bible and we're, we're trying to understand it, especially if it's a confusing passage like this one, find God. Find Jesus. Look for him in the passage. That is where you're going to find the heart of the message. This book is it's God's word. And it's designed to help us to know him and to bring us to God. So where's God in this passage? Well, if I take this passage at face value and I think the necromancer really did see Samuel, then God is there. His words are on the prophet's disembodied lips, and they point us to two sides of the same coin. Samuel remarked that Saul has become the enemy of the Lord. And I think that might just need to wash over us for a second. It's possible to become the enemy of God. James, in the, in the New Testament, he speaks of people who make themselves God's enemies when he writes, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's like hatred and hostility with God, enemies of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Apostle Paul twice refers to those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus as enemies of God. And Jesus himself showed us how in Psalm 110, David points to him, to Jesus, when he writes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this, this isn't just some Old Testament vengeful God stuff, which is such a phony idea anyway. Cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. It is possible to become an enemy of God, and that is a terrible thing. Some people live their lives in open rebellion against God, their, you know, their entire lives, and we have no doubt about where they stand. And maybe it's easy to see those guys in an Adolf Hitler or a John Wayne Gacy and say, yeah, that's an enemy of God. But the thing that's so tragic about Samuel, or excuse me, about Saul, is how from a human perspective he seems so close to being a friend of God. And as we read 1 Samuel, especially in the early going, we want to root for Saul. We see his promise. We see him teetering on the precipice of being a true servant of God. And we just don't know what to think of him. He, he defeats Israel's enemies one moment and acts cowardly the next. He removes the sorcerers from the land, apparently. And then 
in the next episode, he acts as if he knows better than God. He's a conflicted figure. He's a confusing figure. But nonetheless, now, at this point in his life, most clearly and most assuredly, he is God's enemy. And the objective proof that Samuel offers of the fact that Saul is God's enemy is that he didn't follow God's commands in his dealings with the Amalekites. Story way back in the middle of this book, before the middle point of the book, and Saul is giving clear instructions about what God wants him to do, and he doesn't follow through. That is way before Saul does some of the really heinous stuff that he does. And I imagine if we'd taken the national poll, uh, pulse at that time, if they had conducted a survey of uh, the typical Israelite, 20 to 50 years old, and, and said, you know, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of King Saul? I think a lot of Israelites, maybe most, would have said Saul was a great leader, a good king. But he was an enemy of God. Even before Saul's life seemed scandalous to us, he was already God's enemy. Because in his heart, he saw himself as king, not God. It was Saul's will. It was Saul's heart, Saul's passions, not God's, that drove him. Bible, we could say, if you take a, a portrait of what it says from Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament, a simple definition of what it means to be an enemy of God is to not honor God as the king that he is. He is the great king. He is the perfect king. He is the good king. He then is owed all of our honor, all of our our praise, all of our treasure. It's not so much that he demands it as that he deserves it. And to give him anything less would be fundamentally unjust. But we don't. Instead, we rebel. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And our rebellion makes us God's enemies. And so if you have not honored God with everything he deserves from you, it may be that you also are God's enemy. Now, I say may only because there's another side to this coin, and that other side leads to a hope and a comfort. Here's the other side of that coin. Samuel told Saul he would die the next day. Okay, that doesn't sound like the reverse side of, of, of a, being God's enemy, but, but hear me out. I think there's like three really pivotal, mom, pivotal moments in Saul's life that mark out his hostility toward God. There's 1 Samuel 13, where Saul decided to worship God the way he thought was best to honor God using his own perceived wisdom and problem-solving ability instead of worshiping God the way God had said he wanted to be worshiped. 
the way God had revealed to him through his prophet Samuel. And so Saul rejects God's instructions, and as a result, he learns that he will not have a dynasty. The house of Saul would end with Saul, and then he'd be replaced by another. But Saul didn't learn from that mistake. When he was later commanded by God to absolutely destroy the Amalekites who were under God's judgment and to destroy all of their possessions, Saul took for himself and his army all of the best goods and all of the animals of the Amalekites as spoils of war. And he even spared the life of the king of the Amalekites. Sometimes in that period, kings would spare the lives of their equals as a power move for any number of reasons, I guess. You might think it neat to have a pet king to show how strong and tough you are. And so Saul didn't take God's command seriously. He half-heartedly followed it and used it as a way to increase his riches and his prestige. And as a result, God rejected Saul as king altogether and sent Samuel to anoint a new king which was David. And Saul still didn't learn. Even after that, even after this David actually came into his service to soothe him with music when he was being tormented by spirit, even when David actually served him by becoming a successful warrior who made Saul's kingdom stronger, Saul instead hardened his heart and grew more and more wicked to the point that he became a mortal threat to his own people, killing and threatening the innocent. Only now, at Endor, in flagrantly violating the first and third commandments of God's law, does God give up on Saul and promise him that this time he wouldn't lose a dynasty. This time he wouldn't lose his kingship this time he would lose his life. So this is years in the making. Years in the making. Years of terrible, awful, increasingly disturbing behavior from Saul to get to this point. There's this trope that the God of the Old Testament is vengeful. But here is God exercising tremendous patience with Saul. God was not patient with Saul because Saul was good. God was patient because God is good. In the book of Romans, the, in the New Testament, the apostle Paul writes about rebels like me, and you, like Saul, who carry on as if there's no consequences to our behavior. He says, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness and forbearance and patience are meant to lead us to repentance. 
Yes, Saul was an enemy of God. But God did not give him immediately what he deserved. God patiently gave Saul space to continue to rebel over and over, holding back his judgment that Saul might have an opportunity to repent, to change, to turn his face and his heart back to God. See, Saul's death sentence in this passage, in light of all of God, if you just, if you just rip it out of its context and just read a verse, you might come away with one idea. But when you put it in the context of all of Saul's life and everything he's done, it reads like the culmination of God's long history of kind patience. So whether you are an avowed non-worshipper of God, or whether you've lived your life as sort of a, a double-minded man like Saul who sometimes feigns to love God even while living for yourself the whole time. If you are here this morning, you are li here living and breathing because God's patience hasn't run out on you yet. It's not that God doesn't see what you do. He does. It's not that God doesn't know what you think. He knows what you think. It's not that God knows all this but doesn't care. He cares. It's that God is extending an invitation for you to return. That's the other side of the coin. We are God's enemies, but God has great patience with his enemies. And that leads us to a comfort, a hope. If we are God's enemies, if we have committed some great injustice by not giving God what is rightfully his, our everything, then it is wonderful that he is patient. It's wonderful that he's kind. But justice still has to be done. A, a judge who lets the wicked go free would be an awful judge. But there's something else that Samuel said to Saul. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Now David, as we've seen, is not a perfect man, but he did honor God. And so eventually he, unlike Saul, is given a dynasty and a, and a promise that one of his descendants would one day rule an eternal throne. A descendant who would fulfill the ancient promises that had been given to Abraham, that the world would be blessed through his descendant. That king was Jesus, who came to do something quite remarkable. Jesus died on the cross. You, you know that. But do you know why he did that? He tells us that he did that so that he could pay the penalty for the crimes of people who dishonored God. He paid the debt. And so justice was met on Jesus so that it didn't have to be met on us. 
so that God could offer forgiveness without compromising his justice. And so just as Israel was supposed to turn to King David as God's chosen king, so the world is now called upon to turn to Jesus, the King of kings, because all who do so receive forgiveness for their crimes and are no longer called enemies of God. And that is an invitation that is available to all of us today. The strange history of 1 Samuel 28 is a reminder of the danger. Not the danger of practicing witchcraft, but the danger of ignoring God's kind patience and running from him until it's too late. It's also a reminder that if we're alive, it's not too late. And there is a king greater than Samuel, or greater than Saul, greater even than David, who can take away our guilt. And that may be our great comfort and hope if we run to it. Let's pray. Father, there may be among us those who have persuaded ourselves that we are good men and good women, great kings in our own mind, who perhaps with our lips occasionally honor you, but our hearts are actually far from you, like King Saul. And we are your enemies. Show us any of us in that situation, a glimpse of your patient kindness and mercy that we might be drawn back to you and recognize that the king of our hearts properly ought to be Jesus and not me. Father, there may be those of us who have lived in more flagrant rebellion. Maybe we feel the weight of our crimes, the weight of our mistakes, the weight of our errors, and thinking that you may be done with us. We pray, Father, for those who feel that way, that they would see that this time that they are living and breathing is a moment of grace from you that they might have space to turn and that you would welcome them, even them, whatever they think they have done, whatever they have done, into your arms. And may those of us that you have graciously called to repentance and have responded to that call Never lose sight of the depths of what you called us from. 
that we are no longer your enemies, not because of our great righteousness, but of Jesus' great righteousness. And give us the boldness and courage to call the living and the breathing who still have time to repentance that leads to eternal life in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's continue to praise King Jesus in song.